0: Hi, this is Paul Starr with the second podcast in the Princeton University course, Law, Institutions, and Public Policy. Last week, we talked about two institutions, citizenship as an example of a publicly-ordered institution and contract as an example of a privately-ordered institution in a legal framework. We could continue taking one important institution at a time, but we need to step back and consider theories that apply more generally. So this week, I'm going to introduce several theoretical perspectives on law and institutional analysis. These correspond to major traditions of thought in economics, sociology, and political science. Since we're going to come back to these ideas at various points in the semester, don't worry if it seems a lot to absorb at first. This is the most abstract discussion we'll have this semester. If you take in other courses in economics, political science, or sociology, some of this may already be familiar to you, but if it's all new, it's going to be a lot to take in. You'll sometimes see recent work on institutions referred to as the new institutional economics, or the new institutionalism, or neo-institutionalism. Back in the 1800s and early 1900s, when the social sciences were first developing, Institutions had been a primary focus of analysis. Then in the mid-20th century, the dominant paradigms in economics, political science, and sociology turned away from institutions, emphasizing individual rational action in the case of economics, political behavior in the case of political science, and values in social systems in the case of sociology. But in the 1970s and 1980s, a rediscovery of institutions swept across the social sciences. The approaches to institutional analysis that have developed over the past several decades are what we're focusing on. This work on institutions comes in different flavors. I'm going to divide it into three general groups of theories. The first is rational choice institutionalism, which explains institutions and institutional change on the basis of rational, self-interested, Calculation. Rational choice institutionalism is rooted in economics, though it has proponents in both political science and sociology. The second perspective is neo institutionalism, which rather than seeing institutions as the result of rational calculation, emphasizes the role of norms of legitimacy or appropriateness. Neo institutionalism has its roots in sociology. The third perspective is historical institutionalism, which emphasizes how the sequence and timing of events can have long-term effects on the structure of institutions. Historical institutionalism has its chief proponents in political science and sociology, though some influential work comes from economics and technology studies. Within each of these groups, there are differences. The most important of those differences concern the significance of unequal power as a factor in determining institutions. So think of these as three families of ideas, each of which includes cousins who disagree with each other. In this podcast, I'm going to counterpose the first two of these theoretical perspectives, rational choice theory and neo-institutionalism. Then in class on Wednesday, I'm going to focus more on historical institutionalism. The fundamental choice, the fundamental thrust of rational choice institutionalism is to explain the structure of institutions on the basis of self-interested individual calculation. Imagine two filtering processes in the choice of actions that individuals make. The first filter limits individual's choice to a set of feasible options. Only some actions are technically feasible at any moment. The second filter rules out certain options within that set on the basis of the individual's preferences. In the rational choice view, actors calculate the costs and benefits of different alternatives in the feasible set and choose the one that best fits their preferences. Institutions develop or disappear depending on how well they perform in satisfying those preferences. One line of rational choice analysis posits that institutions that win out competitively are more efficient than other institutional alternatives. But as we'll see, that's not a necessary assumption, even from within the rational choice framework. If we think powerful actors matter more to institutional outcomes, their pursuit of self-interest may be decisive. Much of the old institutional economics in the 19th century was historical and descriptive. But in the 20th century, economists moved in a different direction toward the neoclassical economics that continues to be taught in introductory economics classes and that is based on models of choice by atomized individuals acting outside of historical time in what is assumed to be, at least as initial point of reference, a perfectly competitive market. A new institutional economics brought rational choice into the explanation of institutions. The key early figure was Ronald Coase. In a 1937 paper, The Nature of the Firm, Coase argued that the use of the price mechanism, the very basis of the market, has a cost. It's the cost of working out a separate contract for each transaction. A firm can economize on transaction costs, however, by bringing labor inside the organization instead of contracting in the market for it. Exchanges among employees within a firm don't each require a separate contract. In Coase's argument, that's the reason that firms develop. It's more efficient to take some transactions into the organization. The concept of transaction costs became central in the rebirth of institutional economics in the 1970s, particularly in the work of Oliver Williamson. Williamson focused focused on governance structures, institutions for governing economic activity. What's a governance structure? Well, the market is a governance structure. Hierarchies, that is, private firms or government bureaucracies, are governance structures. There can also be various hybrid arrangements such as strategic alliances among groups of firms. But let's put aside the the hybrids and just focus on the central choice between markets and hierarchies. Building on Coase, Williamson argued that two conditions raise transaction costs and and drive governance from markets toward hierarchies. One of these is greater complexity and uncertainty The other is the potential for opportunism, that is, the risk that other parties will take advantage of uncertainty by cheating or underperforming. When tasks are more complex, exchanges are likely to be brought from the market into the firm to control opportunism, or if already inside it, to be subjected to more monitoring. So Williamson's focus was on the comparative efficacy with which alternative generic forms of governance markets Hybrids, hierarchies, economize on transaction costs. How do economists like Coase and Williamson explain institutions? Basically, they argue that the choices made by self-interested actors lead to more efficient governance structures. So let me give you an example of the kind of choice we're talking about. Companies often have to choose between two options. One employ workers to perform a service or produce a good, or two, go into the market and contract with another firm for that good or service. So let's say you operate a hotel. Do you employ janitors and maids, or do you outsource that work and contract with a company that provides cleaning services? Or let's say you operate a medical supply company. Do you make N95 masks, or do you outsource that work, perhaps contract, with a company in, say, China. According to the theories I've mentioned so far, the ideas of Coase and Williamson, these decisions about outsourcing are going to reflect the relative efficiency of the alternatives. But there's another possibility, even within the rational choice school. Douglas North, who's the central figure in the new institutional economics, and like Ronald Coase, a winner of the Nobel Prize in economics, follows in the same tradition, but he asks bigger questions about economic systems, political regimes, constitutions, and comes to different answers. I've asked you to read two chapters from his book, Institutions, Institutional Change, and Economic Performance. North's definition of institutions focuses on fundamental rules, what he calls rules of the game. He writes, institutions are the rules of the game in a society Or more formally, are the humanly devised constraints that shape human interaction. The term constraint here may be a bit one-sided from my standpoint. The rules of the game don't just constrain, they also empower and facilitate. That was the point I was making last week about contract law. The big questions North addresses concern what he calls the central puzzle of human history which is to account for the widely divergent paths of historical change. Why are some societies rich and others poor? He asks, how have societies diverged? What accounts for their widely disparate performance characteristics? Now, one view in economics, as I've already mentioned, is that competition, political and economic, weeds out inferior institutions and rewards those that better solve human problems. This is what North refers to as the efficiency view of institutions, which he himself followed in his early work. But North abandoned that position with his 1981 book, Structure and Change in Economic History, where he acknowledged a point that would not surprise historians, sociologists, political scientists, or for that matter, most people. Rulers devise institutions that serve their own interests, even though those institutions often fail to produce economic growth. But wouldn't competition eliminate the inefficient? No, North finds. Inefficient institutions can get locked in because of self-reinforcing feedback effects. The institutions may reinforce inequalities in power. We'll meet this same argument later in the semester when we read the book by Darren Asimoglu and James Robinson, Why Nations Fail. The crucial insight of this work concerns the mechanisms that result in societies getting stuck at lower levels of development. North's change in view illustrates a tension within rational choice theory between two approaches to institutions. The first, the efficiency approach, explains institutions as efficient solutions to collective action problems. What's a collective action problem? Collective action problems arise in situations where rational actors choosing in isolation from one another, will likely arrive at a choice that is suboptimal from their collective standpoint. A classic example is the tragedy of the commons, overuse of a common resource. The oceans are a common resource. If individual fishermen, even individual countries' fishing trawlers, make decisions in isolation from one another, they will overfish the oceans and deplete the stocks of fish, And not only will the fish be worse off, we'll all be collectively worse off with less and less fish. In the efficiency view of institutions, alternative governance structures arise to deal with collective action problems because they make possible mutually advantageous solutions. People anticipate that they need alternative governance structures and they set rules accordingly. The premise is that more socially efficient forms of governance drive out less efficient forms. It's a very optimistic conception, It's really a shame that it isn't always true. The alternative to the efficiency view explains institutions as rules of the game, imposed by the powerful for their own benefit, even if those rules don't benefit other people nearly as much as other governance structures would. In the examples I gave of make-buy decisions, the hotels maids, the medical supply companies, N95 masks, outsourcing may not actually be more efficient. It may just enable the company to pay workers less and increase its profits. Undoubtedly, a rational choice from the standpoint of the owners and shareholders, though not from the standpoint of the workers. Rational choice theory that takes power into account has much to recommend it. I am partial to it myself. But this approach can have problems too. Work in this tradition sometimes assumes that the powerful are able to anticipate all the effects of institutions far into the future, but they may have short time horizons. They may also have only a very limited idea of the range of possible alternatives, the feasible set. Their judgment about the alternatives may also be limited by their cultural or ideological assumptions. Which brings us to the second half of our discussion, neo-institutionalism in sociology. Let's go back to the concept of a feasible set of alternatives. Perhaps we can reconcile the rational choice perspective with a more sociological view by taking into account how social relations and beliefs affect the feasible set. What's feasible for an individual is determined not only by technology and material resources, but also by what other people believe is socially acceptable. In the neo-institutionalist tradition in sociology, people tend to make choices about institutions, especially the formal rules of institutions, according to the socially approved way of doing something. In other words, individuals act according to a logic of appropriateness as opposed to a logic of instrumental rationality. Instead of the emphasis on calculation, the emphasis here is on culture, social norms, and the web of social relations. Sociological models of institutions have evolved over the past half century or so. In the mid-20th century, the dominant approach posited a direct connection between general societal values and institutional norms. In this view, societal values dictated the structure of institutions. Institutions were functionally adapted to the dominant values of a society. So this approach tended to put all the weight of social explanation on social values, usually conceived as national values. For example, a typical argument would say that America is individualistic, while France is statist. And that's why institutions in America differ from those in France. Values rule. This approach argued that people internalize values and norms, making those values interpersonal commitments. And because of those commitments, Institutions take a particular form in a society. By the 1970s and 80s, there was a shift in sociology toward greater emphasis on the cognitive dimension of consciousness, maps of reality. Uncertainty plays a key role in these explanations. Uncertain of how to solve a problem, people turn to what appears to them to be the most approved, legitimate way of doing it. The article by Paul DiMaggio And Walter Powell, The Iron Cage Revisited, illustrates this perspective. Like North, Demajou and Powell reject the efficiency view of institutions. The particular target of their criticism is the sociologist Max Weber's view, that modern bureaucracy drives out earlier forms of organization because it's so much more efficient. Weber called bureaucracy an iron cage because he thought it had such overwhelming efficiency advantages. DiMaggio and Powell argue that bureaucratization and other changes that often make organizations more similar, I'm sorry, DiMaggio and Powell argue that bureaucratization and other changes often make organizations more similar without necessarily making them more efficient. The central concept of their paper is isomorphism, which they define as a constraining process that forces one unit in a population to resemble other units that face the same set of environmental conditions. Just think about the similarities of colleges and universities. Why do they typically require four years to a BA? Why do they have similarly structured academic departments? Why do their athletic programs offer so many of the same sports? If you transferred from one school to another, you'd find differences to be sure but you'd find a lot of basic institutional features to be the same. How did they get that way? Tendencies towards similarity, DiMaggio and Palgrin, may originate from competition, but organizations also compete, and here I quote them, for political power and institutional legitimacy, for social as well as economic fitness. And in line with that idea, they identify three mechanisms through which institutional isomorphic change occurs. The first is coercive isomorphism, which stems from political factors. Second, mimetic isomorphism, which results from standard responses to uncertainty. And the third is normative isomorphism, which is associated with professionalization. Now, two of these, the first and third, involve law and public policy. The first, coercive isomorphism, refers mainly to legal requirements to follow the same rules and policies. Such requirements tend to create similar structures in organizations. For example, when Congress passed Title IX of the Educational Amendments Act in 1972, it denied colleges and universities receiving federal funds the right to exclude anyone on the basis of sex from educational programs. And since most private colleges and universities receive federal funds, In one form or another, they are required to offer equal opportunities to women in their programs, including athletics, That legal change, and many others like it, affecting universities and other organizations, illustrate what DiMaggio and Powell call coercive isomorphism. Coercive in the sense that it has the force of law behind it. The third form of isomorphism, normative isomorphism, is based on professional standards. And it, too, often involves law. For example, physicians are licensed to practice medicine. Under scope of practice rules, certain procedures are legally reserved exclusively to licensed physicians. If you try your hand at surgery without the proper training and credentials, you're going to get in a lot of legal trouble. The rules adopted by a licensed profession, in this case medicine, carry legal force. Indeed, even if you are a physician, you had best heed the professionally recognized standards of practice, lest you expose yourself to a malpractice suit. That's not true of all professions. For example, most professional journalists recognize certain standards in reporting for identifying and corroborating sources. But journalists are not licensed. Their standards generally affect the practice of journalism, only insofar as news organizations enforce them. In the DiMaggio and Powell article, the second mechanism is mimetic isomorphism, that is, following a common or model practice as a response to uncertainty. The idea here is that when organizational decision makers are unsure what to do, they tend to imitate others that they believe to be a model. There's no legal compulsion here, just a tendency to follow what others are doing. In my view, DiMaggio and Powell's concept of mimetic isomorphism collapses two distinct processes, imitation and learning. Under conditions of uncertainty, many organizations, private and public, do simply copy what others do. But besides copying, they may also analyze what other organizations do and improve on their results. And in that case, the process is better described as learning than simply copying. The neo-institutionalist tradition has led to a great deal of work on the diffusion of institutions, including the diffusion of laws and policies across jurisdictions, another way in which neo-institutionalist theory is relevant to our course. For example, as we'll discuss later, the practice of writing constitutions diffused around the world in the 19th and 20th centuries. Constitution writers often adopted many of the same provisions, often the same language. More recently, the institution of judicial review, that is, courts empowered to strike down laws or administer rulings, diffused across governments. Just as epidemiologists try to understand the spread of a disease, so social scientists are interested in understanding how institutions propagate internationally. Here, the neo-institutionalist account of institutional isomorphism is useful. Many countries adopt laws and policies to conform to international standards. Sometimes there's an element of coercive isomorphism. For example, when countries adopt certain policies to satisfy the World Bank or other lenders. Sometimes there's an element of normative isomorphism. When a country is influenced by professional standards, say, public health standards, adopted by the World Health Organization. Sometimes there's an element of organizational learning where countries try to build on others' experience. And sometimes there's an element of mimetic isomorphism, imitation under uncertainty. Neo-institutionalist work often tends to be highly skeptical of the rational basis of formal institutions. Neo-institutionalists tend to see the adoption of rules and practices as arising from ideas of legitimacy rather than effectiveness or efficiency. To go back to the earlier example of outsourcing decisions, the neo institutionalist would not be surprised to find that some countries, some companies, outsource production even when it isn't entirely rational for them to do so. For example, when companies rely on global supply chains. They expose themselves to risks from disruptions around the world that they wouldn't be exposed to if they kept production at home. My earlier mention of a medical supply company outsourcing the production of N95 masks to China was not a random choice. That turned out to be a huge problem for the United States in early 2020 when China and other countries stopped exporting N95 masks because they needed them at home in the fight against the COVID 19 pandemic, neo institutionalist work is often skeptical about another important point whether formal rules, including laws, actually do shape social and economic activity. To conform with the demands of the World Bank, a country may adopt an anti corruption law, but corruption may not stop. To conform with international norms, a government may adopt a constitution promising free speech, and other rights, but continue to suppress dissenters. Laws may sometimes just be window dressing, useful fictions. One of the central tasks of the empirical study of law is to distinguish those situations where law is just a convenient fiction from those other situations when it establishes socially effective rules of the game. As with rational choice theory, neo-institutionalism has its problems. In my view, it's useful mainly in explaining how institutions diffuse, not how they originate, not how they change, not what happens when there are conflicting norms. So just to recap what I've said about these two traditions, rational choice theory and neo-institutionalist theory. Rational choice theory emphasizes rational calculation calculation of costs and benefits in the explanation of institutions. Neo-institutionalist theory emphasizes culture, norms of legitimacy and appropriateness in explaining institutions. Within the rational choice tradition, one line of analysis tends to see institutions as evolving over time toward greater efficiency. But a contrary view sees institutions as shaped by the rational calculations of the powerful and does not make the triumphalist assumption that surviving institutions are more efficient. The neo-institutional school is largely agnostic, if not downright skeptical, about efficiency as a dominant, as a determinant of institutional survival. Some of the tendencies toward isomorphism may lead to more efficient organizations. But DiMaggio and Powell say that often there's no evidence organizations become more efficient when they develop similar rules and structures. Yet those persist because organizations often need to appear to be doing what others believe to be the most efficient and efficient thing, even if it isn't. These theories all abstract from historical time. But as soon as we take up concrete cases of institutions, we need to introduce historical context. We need to think about how developments proceed over time. Introducing a historical dimension doesn't necessarily contradict either rational choice or neo-institutional theory. Indeed, both of those approaches can be combined with a third approach, historical institutionalism, which we'll be discussing in class on Wednesday, February 10th.